Anytime we have the privilege to come together as God's people, with the express purpose of giving unto him the glory that is due his name, it is a beautiful blessing. And we are so very thankful to God. We don't take it for granted this first day of the week that he has designed and orchestrated specifically for us to be able to come together collectively for that purpose. So glad that we're all here. Appreciate this congregation so very much. The faithful stance they've taken on the truth for so many years and continue to do such. And we we, just, uh, we really don't uh, take this lightly or for granted. But uh, we love you and we appreciate you continue to stand on the truth of God. There's so many congregations these days and so many Christians that have deviated from the truth. And so we understand how important it is to continue to be what God has designed us to be and to do what God has designed us to, to do. So very wonderful. Some good friends to be able to come here and see and family members, of course. And so always a pleasure to be able to stop through. We look at the book of Psalm chapter 68, verse number 19. David is a writer there and, and he says, I will praise the Lord for he daily loadeth me with benefits, even the God of our salvation. And so David is a writer here. And again, he's talking about the fact that God is worthy to be praised. And, and of course, we know God is worthy to be praised for so many different reasons. But the one that he highlights here is the fact that he daily loads us with benefits. My friends, every last one of us who sit here today at the sound of my voice can attest to that very fact that God daily loads us with benefits. James in the book of James chapter one in verse number 17 would say something very similar to this. Every good, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights in whom there is no variation or turning as shadows. And so James likewise in the same vein of thought recognizes that everything that we possess that is good, that is perfect, that falls under that category. Everything that we have by way of a blessing or a benefit, my friends, we didn't derive it from our own hands or our own imaginations or ingenuity or our power or strength of arm, but it comes down from the great Father of heaven, from our God above. We are very rich people in this country, are we not? And we go other places in the world, and, and if we think that we have it bad here in the United States of America, which sometimes we're prone to think that we do, the economy is not everything that should be right now. And we talk about inflation, and we complain about these things, and, and I'm just as guilty as that as anybody else is. But we go other places, and we realize how wealthy we actually are here. And God has blessed us so very richly, even now in this country that is unfortunately turning its back on God in so many different places and in so many different arenas. But God is still blessing us very, very wonderfully. And so as a people, we know what it means to get, don't we? We know what it means to get, to receive things. We just finished a couple of months ago celebrating the holiday. If you celebrate the holiday that the world calls Christmas, we don't celebrate this as a religious holiday, obviously. But sometimes we do engage in the American tradition of exchanging gifts one with another. And so whenever that occurs, generally one of the first questions that will be asked on the day after Christmas is, well, what did you get? What did you get? Whenever we celebrate our birthdays and sometimes we exchange gifts where birthdays are concerned. And we were eating supper with the Swearingen's and the Nelsons on last night and and. Shelly had mentioned that all their kids' birthdays are in February, and so, man, they got a lot of gift-giving, I guess, that goes on in February. And, and man, God bless you and, and have mercy on you, I guess, is what I need to be praying. All that occurs in February. And so, no doubt, when that month has come and gone, 
some of their children's peers might ask them, well, what did you get? What did you get? At the Texas School of Preaching, a school that we started this last year, and I've got the privilege of being a part of that beautiful work. We had just finished finals week on last week, and now we're in our spring break. And and so no doubt, with these students having received some of their grades, they're probably on the phone with one another asking one another, well, what did you get? In homiletics two, what did you get? Or in the Pentateuch three, what did you get? And so we are probably familiar with that question. We know what it means to get, don't we? Well, I want to invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Proverbs, to the the third chapter. We're going to begin at verse number five. We'll go down to verse number 12. And probably this is a passage of scripture that you are very familiar with. This is where the son of the sweet psalmist of Israel, Solomon, inspired by God, will talk about what our responsibility is to God, our fourfold responsibility to God. Before we go to that text specifically, I want us to talk about real quickly, very briefly, what is the overall thrust or theme of the book of Proverbs? If I were to think of one verse that might be a thematic verse for the entire book, one that comes to my mind is Proverbs chapter 4, verse number 7. The Bible teaches us to get wisdom and all thy getting, get an understanding. He will tell us that wisdom is the principal thing. That is the number one thing. He, he is about the idea of us being about the business of accumulating God's wisdom. Matter of fact, when you look at the first chapter, and you look at the first six verses of that chapter, he will talk about the fact that my aim and my objective in this book is to be able to impart wisdom and understanding and knowledge and discernment to my children. It's written from the vantage point of a father who is trying to instruct his children and all the various facets and aspects of life that we encounter as we sojourn this earth that God has created for us. And so that's what this book is all about. And again, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, he says. And all of thy getting, we talked about the things that we get during different holidays, the things that we get during birthdays, the things that we get on a day-to-day basis because God is so very good to us. He says, in all of your getting, consider everything that you get. Make sure that you do not neglect in all of that to get an understanding. Well, what does Solomon want us to get an understanding of? Well, you go through that book and you you peruse through the, the lofty principles and concepts that are contained therein. You know, in the first chapter, one of the first things that he wants us to get is an understanding in regards to those people that we keep in our company. He would tell the son that whenever these these People come to you and they they want to engage in this process of laying in wait for blood of others to be able to take the things that they have accumulated that God has blessed them with unlawfully. He says, don't go with them. Don't go with them. The first thing he wants them to get is an understanding in regards to our company, the company that we keep. We know passages like 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 33. That reiterate the same the same exact thought in the New Testament times that is the fact that, that we still need to make sure that we are aware of the company that we keep and we need to realize that bad company corrupts good morals. And then in the second place in chapter one, he wants us to get an understanding in regards to the availability of wisdom. Solomon will personify wisdom as a woman. 
And so he refers to her with the correct pronoun, she, since he's personifying her as a woman, and the correct pronoun would be she here. And so he often refers to wisdom as she or her, and he talks about the fact that she is calling. She stands in the concourses, and she calls out to the simple, come and get the wisdom that I have to give you. Come get the instruction that is available to you. And he talks about the unfortunate fact that so many times men will refuse God's wisdom. And in doing such, eventually calamity is going to come upon their lives. And oftentimes it is the case that it's only when that calamity begins to come into the lives of men as a way of consequence of their ignoring wisdom that they then will begin to call out the wisdom. And, and the Bible says that God is going to laugh at their calamity in that hour because they had rejected wisdom. And so he wants us to gain an understanding that wisdom is available, but she's available for a, a window of time, a moment of opportunity. And we need to make sure that we capitalize on it while she is available. Well, we get over into chapter two and we see that Solomon wants us to gain an understanding, to get an understanding in regards to two figures that are reoccurring in this book. Number one is the perverse man. and Number two is the strange woman. You look at that strange woman, especially in Proverbs chapter two, when she makes appearances in chapter four, chapter five, chapter seven and chapter nine. And later on in the book as well, Solomon is very interested that in his sons, especially are have gained an understanding of who this woman is and how that they need to avoid her at all costs. Make sure that we don't cross paths with these people. The Bible will let us know here. And then we get into chapter three and in chapter three of the book of Proverbs, he begins by saying this, my son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments for the length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee, bind them about thy neck, write them upon thy, the table of thine heart. So shall thy find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. And again, that is his aim and ambition, is that we find good understanding in the sight of God and in the sight of man. Well, when we get to verse number five, we see that Solomon is concerned that we gain an understanding, that we get wisdom in regards to something that is so very important to us, and that is our responsibilities to God. My friends, we understand how God, how good God is to us, don't we? I mean, surely every last one of us can attest to the fact that our God is a good God. My good brother back there, we were talking about that before service started on this morning, just how good God is to us. We think about the blessings that he gives us. We catalog what he does for us day by day, and we realize just how good God is, don't we? I'm mindful of Acts chapter 17. In the sermon of the Apostle Paul as he's on the Areopagus or Mars Hill as it's translated and he talks about the true God of heaven as opposed to the mythological so-called gods of the Greeks and he will talk about the true God of heaven and he, he lets us know that this is the one in whom we live and move and have our very being. He tells us at the outset of that sermon this God doesn't dwell in temples made with men's hands as though he needed anything seeing he gives to all life, breath and all things. And so, my friends, every breath that you take, understand that God has given that to you. We need to realize that the, the relationships that we enjoy in this life, God has blessed us with them. Whether it be husband, wife, whether it be mother or father, whether it be siblings, cousins, whatever the case may be, brothers and sisters in Christ, God has given us this. We think about this beautiful church that we are a part of, that we love and cherish. Jesus Christ gave himself for this church. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 
Verse 23 to verse number 25. We realize that he purchased it with his own blood. Acts chapter 20 and verse number 28. Everything that we have, our homes, our cars, our shelter, our food, our clothing, our soundness of mind, our portion of health and strength. This all comes from God. He's so very good to us. My friends, we've got responsibility to him, don't we? Man, so many people walk this planet and it's so very unfortunate and it's absolutely heartbreaking. They walk this planet enjoying every beautiful thing that God has provided for them and will not even recognize that he exists. How sad is that? My friends, we need to be people that are not numbered among those who fall in that category. But we need to be a people that understand what our responsibility to God is. So Solomon takes us on this journey, verses 5 through 12, to help us to understand our fourfold responsibility to God. Number one, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thy own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Number one, trust in the Lord. With all thine heart. That's responsibility number one. That's our first part of our responsibility to God is to trust in him with all of our heart. And whenever we look at that passage of scripture and we look at those two and a half verses, verse number five to verse number seven A, we realize here that implicit in the passage of scripture in this part of the, the passage is the fact that God is trustworthy. Now we think about God and has God ever required of man anything that does not make sense? Has God ever required of us anything that does not fall within the category of logic or rationale? The answer to that question is absolutely not. Absolutely not. God would not require that we trust in him if we were not trustworthy. Does that make sense? Certainly it does. We know God's trustworthy. How do we know that? Well, we know it because we see it explicitly stated in the Bible in so many different places. I think about places like the book of Titus chapter 1. In verse number one and two, the Apostle Paul is the writer here. And as he often does and as he always does, really, in his writings, he will begin with what we call as called a prologue from a literary standpoint or a greeting. And that greeting often contains a wealth of information in and of itself. Titus is no exception to this rule. Excuse me. Titus chapter one. Verse number one and two. Paul, the servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. Notice verse number two, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie has promised before the world began. Now, he describes God here as a God who cannot lie. My friends, the Bible tells us that God is trustworthy. Whenever Solomon says that a part of your responsibility is to trust in God with all of your heart. My friends, this is something that is doable. This is something that is logical. This is something that is reasonable because our God is a trustworthy God. In the book of Hebrews chapter 6, if you will accompany me there real quickly. Of course, at this juncture, the Hebrews writer is talking about the beautiful promise that God had made to Abraham. And we understand that promise that is articulated for us in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Repeated so many different places in the Bible here in the thoughts and the writings of the Hebrews author. If you go down there to verse number 14, he begins to recite this promise that God made to Abraham so long ago. Surely blessing, I will bless thee and multiplying, I will multiply thee. 
And so after he had patiently endured Abraham, that is, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater. Now it's talking about God's promise to Abraham. For men verily swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. In other words, our word is bond, as we say from time to time. If I said it, if I told you that I was going to do something, then we ought to be able to be trusted to do that. We ought to be able to be trusted to do that. Our word should be our bond, if you will. But he's talking about the fact that, that typically speaking, ideally speaking, that is the way that it is. Verse number 17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the, listen to this, immutability of his counsel, confirmed by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. Immutability. Two times in that passage of scripture, we find that terminology, immutability. And that uh, comes from a word in the Greek language, ametathetos. Ametathetos. And what that word literally means is it cannot be changed. It cannot move in position. See, it's a combination word. It really has three aspects to it. Meta, which is the idea, the preposition, the idea of changing. And then titami, the idea of position. And then, of course, at the very front of that word, it's got the awful primitive, which means negated. And so the Bible's telling us that God's position does not change is what's under consideration here. And so, in other words, whenever God told Abraham that he was going to do a thing, whenever God made a promise to Abraham, Abraham could proverbially take that thing to the bank because God's position was not going to change on it. We need to realize that we, we have the same God. We need to make sure that we understand that. The point here is that we can trust him, but, but in every aspect of our lives, we need to be cognizant of the fact that God doesn't change his position. If he said it, it is the truth. And we need to make sure that we realize that. When it comes to obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has set before us a set of conditions. And he says, if you meet these conditions, I will give you salvation. I will forgive you sins upon the day of Pentecost. They were talking about it in the Bible class this morning, but the Chris did a beautiful job. And when you get to Acts chapter 2, verse number 36, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. That is the gospel. They were pricked in their hearts. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What do we need to do here? And the response that they are given by Peter is repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is not only to you, but to your children, to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And so we realize because God's word does not change, because his position is immutable, the same promise that was made to those who heard Peter and the apostles preach 2,000 years ago is the same promise that applies to you and to me. He says it's not only to you, but it's to your children and all that are far off. We thank God for that. He's trustworthy. Whenever Solomon tells us the first part of our responsibility to God is to trust in him with all of our hearts, lean not to our own understanding and implies that he's trustworthy. But he goes on to say, in all thy ways, acknowledge him and he will direct thy paths. So not only do we have to keep in mind here that God is trustworthy, but number two, that he desires to direct our path by way of a sub point to this point. He desires to direct our paths. 
In places like the book of Jeremiah, chapter 10, verse number 23, this is a passage of scripture that's probably very familiar to you. You could probably quote this thing, right? Where Jeremiah says, oh, Lord God, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It's not a man that walks to direct his steps. And don't you love that? Don't you love that we can lean on God for our direction? In Psalm 119, verse number 24, the writer tells us there that, that the, the law of the Lord is his delight and his, uh, excuse me, his delight, the testimony of his Lord, rather, is his delight and his counselor. I like the second part of that verse. Not only is God's word his delight, but he recognizes that God's word is my counselor. In chapter 119, verse number 105, how familiar are we with that passage? His word is a lamp unto my feet, and it is a light unto my path. In the book of 2 Samuel, between chapters 13 and 15, 2 Chronicles 13 through 15, we see David. Pardon me, I was right the first time. 2 Samuel 13 through 15. We see David trying to transport the Ark of the Covenant from Kirjath-Jerim, where it had set for 20 years after it had been stolen by the Philistines in battle. He wants to transport it to the city of David, the capital city. And the Bible says they tried to do that by building a cart, having that cart hooked up to a yoke of oxen, having a couple of men by the name of Uzzah in Ohio, get on and drive that cart. And the Bible tells us that at one point the oxen stumble and probably as many of us would have done, didn't want to see the Ark of the Covenant damaged. The Bible says other reaches back and he steadies that thing. We know the account, don't we? What happened to them? What happened to him? The Bible says he died. He died on the spot. We find out in text that David become distraught because of this. He was upset because of this. And I can imagine what his thinking was. Lord, we're just trying to do something that we know to be the right thing. We are trying to do what needs to be done. And this tragedy befalls us. What gives? What gives? But I love it. Once you get over to chapter 15, the Bible says they purpose to do it again. And this time God consult, or excuse me, David consulted the scriptures and found out the due order. The New King James Version says he sought out the prescribed manner, the correct way in which that Ark of the Covenant was to be transported. They did it right this time. He had the Levites consecrate themselves, had them take the poles that were designed for the Ark of the Covenant to insert those poles in its rings. And the appointed Levites were to carry that thing from point A to point B. They, they did it right the second time. They were successful. What point are we making here? God desires and God has, in fact, guided our lives with his word. My friends, all we have to do is be willing to consult the due order, the prescribed manner. And so many times when men in life want to debate what course of action we ought to be taking. Now, I think about this in the church so often. We want to debate what course of action should we be taking here? You know, we, we got women in the church that are very, very talented. Don't disagree with that. Some of them are very well educated. Don't disagree with that. So we ought to make them elders and preachers. Hmm. Now we got a problem. Now we got a problem. Got men in the church that, man, they're great businessmen. OK, all right. 
good businessmen. Just look at their businesses. They're very successful. And so we ought to make them elders, even though, you know, some of them have been married three, four times. We want to make them elders, even though they don't, don't meet the qualifications. The temperament is not right. We want to make them elders, even though they're not apt to teach. <coughs> but they're good businessmen. My friends, we need to consult the due order. See what God has to say about every matter. Second Peter chapter one, verse number three. The Bible teaches us that God, through his divine power, has given unto us all things that pertain to life and to godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue. So we don't have to sit around around our tables and contemplate what we ought to be doing in regards to any matter. God's already spoken to us, has he not? He's already taught us. He's already directed our paths. And go back to the book of, of Micah real quickly before we move on. Go back to the book of Micah. And in Micah chapter 6, verse 6 to 8, I, I love this passage of scripture. Uh, I've usually utilized it a lot in, in my preaching. But in Micah uh, chapter 6, of course, we know that Micah at the same time that Isaiah is preaching to those Children of Judah that are in Jerusalem, Micah is preaching out on the countryside southwest of Jerusalem. And so Isaiah was a city preacher, Micah was a country preacher, but the, God's got all bases covered here. And of course, he's dealing with the Jews at a time in which they have turned their backs on him. They become steeped and engrossed in idolatry. And of course, they thought that it would be perfectly suitable for us both to be able to, to serve mammon and God, both to be able to worship idols and Jehovah. And God says, that's a no-go for me. Matter of fact, he told them at the very outset that that was a no-go. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 3, you cannot serve me and your manufactured God. You can put no other God before me. You cannot manufacture anything that you see in the heavens above, that you see on earth beneath, that you see in the waters under the earth. You cannot manufacture these things and bow down to them as though they are God. And that be okay with me. I'm a jealous God, he said. And so when he's endured... And suffer these things for centuries and centuries and centuries. He sends the prophet Micah and he tells them that, look, God is no longer accepting the things that you are bringing before him in worship. And I want you to notice the very flippant line of interrogation that they begin to present to God. Verse number six, wherewithal shall we come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my womb for the sin of my soul? You see what's going on here? Again, in a very flippant manner, they're saying, God, what do you want from us? What do you want from us? You've told us that you're not going to accept offerings from our hands. What do you want from us? Notice verse number eight. And how did Micah says? He has showed thee, O oh man, what is good. Micah says there's no ambiguity here. There should be no confusion about this matter. God has showed you what is good. He's already told you, my friends. He's always, from the very outset of time, told us what is expected of us. Has he not? From the very beginning, takes Adam, the man that he creates, puts him in the Garden of Eden, to dress it and to keep it. Genesis chapter 2, verse number 15. And he commands the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou shalt free, thou mayest free to eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Don't eat of that one. The day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. God has always, from the very beginning, guided us in his word. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not on thy own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. He will direct your path. Be not wise in our own eyes. The next thing he says here is fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. The second part of verse number seven. Fear the Lord and depart from evil, which will be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. So the first responsibility, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Responsibility number two, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. It's going to be health to your navel. It's going to be marrow to your bones. And that is a, an expression that you see often in the writings of the Old Testament prophets, and especially the psalmist and those who write wisdom literature. He mentions the, the fact that the maxim, that the general way in which things occur is this. And if we will fear God, that will be conducive to our physical health. Now, that's not to say that one of these days we're not all going to acquire some type of physical infirmity that ultimately will be conducive to our own death. My friends, that will set whenever Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. That's just the way it is. It's appointed unto man once to die. Hebrews chapter 9 the verse is number 22. After that, the judgment. And so that is inevitable for us all. But the point generally made here is that whenever we fear God, whenever we manifest a healthy fear of God, we are going to act in a way, we're going to think in such a way that is going to be conducive to things being good for us physically, health-wise, mentally, psychologically. We know this is the truth, don't we? And I love looking at this passage and this word, Phobos in the Greek language, whenever you look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the word is Phobos. Whenever you go to the New Testament and the Bible talks about fearing God, it is that word Phobos, the word from which we get phobia. So a lot of times we listen to people try to talk around the meaning of that term. A lot of times we listen to people try to downplay what that really means. Well, what does phobia mean, my friends? We've derived the correct word from that word in the Greek language. It means to be fearful. It means to be scared of something. What he's telling us is there are some things that we ought to be fearful of doing because they transgress the will of God. Yes, he's saying you ought to be scared to do certain things. I know there's an element of a healthy reverence there. That's what we always hear. There's an element of a healthy reverence. We realize that. We don't deny that. But here's something we don't deny either. Inherent in that word is the idea that we ought to be scared to do certain things because of the God that exists in heaven. My friends, if we understood that correctly, maybe there would be some things that people that we just would not do. Go back to Genesis chapter four and we see the second generation of men and we see one brother take the life of another. Cain killed Abel. We're familiar with the account, are we not? Cain kills Abel. And God inquires about that. The blood of your brother cries out and up to heaven. The earth has swallowed up his blood and the earth is crying out to me. What have you done? Where's your brother? And of course, his flipping response is, am I my brother's keeper? God's not going to play that game with him. I understand what you have done and you are going to be punished because of that. Verse number 13 what is the response of Cain? So God tells him, you're going to be banished from among people because of what you have done. And what is Cain's response? God, my punishment is more than I can bear. You think this man is going through some psychological anguish at that time? 
Do you think he's got some anxiety and some stress that he's dealing with because of the punishment he was given? To answer that question, it's got to be yes. How could he have avoided that? By being fearful of doing something that God forbids men to do. So many times we bring hardship, anguish, and pain into our own lives. And what is the reason? Because we simply, we're not scared to do what God says don't do. We just weren't scared to do what God says don't do. Whenever we begin to reap the consequences of those types of behavior, whenever the health of our navels and the marrow of our bones begin to diminish, we need to give that some thought. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord, number two. Then number three, number three, the Bible says, honor, verse number nine, the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. Notice this, so shall our barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst forth with new wine. Here's something I want you to notice about all four of these as we hasten to the, the finish line here is this. Anytime God tells us to do something, do you realize in this passage of scripture that whatever the responsibility it is, it is accompanied by a reward from God? Amen. See, God says, do it. And here's what I will do for you in exchange. It's not a one-sided coin, my friends. It's not a one-way street. It never has been with God. God created us. We are his children. He says, you do what it is that I expect you to do. And man, there is rich reward. Ultimately, heaven will be our homes. We are faithful unto death. Revelation chapter 2, verse number 10. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 6 through 8. See, Paul says, look, I fought the good fight. Man, did it take something for Paul to be engaged in that good fight and to fight it all of his life? You better believe it. And he says in the book of Galatians, I bear the marks of Christ in my body. My friends, that wasn't a metaphor. That was literal. That was literal. The man was stoned almost to death in Lystra. The man was beaten with 40 stripes, save one. I went three different times, Brother Chuck. I can't remember exactly what he says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But I think three times. He was shipwrecked. He was sometimes almost starved to death. He was imprisoned. He truly bore the marks of Christ in his body. So at the end of his life, he says, I fought the good fight. The man won a fight at once. He said, I have kept the finish to a race, rather. And what a race he ran. He says, I've kept the faith. Is that the end of that verse? It's not, is it? He says, now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, is going to give to me in that day, not to me only, but listen to this, to all those who love his appearing. I love this passage of scripture in Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, 5 through 12, pardon me. Because God is saying, you've got a responsibility to me. And if you fulfill it, man, I'm going to reward you so richly. I'm going to reward you so sumptuously because of that. Honor God with your substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. God says, give back to me of that of which I've given to you. And he's always required that. No matter what the dispensation, religiously speaking, was. Give back. Under the old covenant was a tithe. It was a tenth of everything that they possessed. Their monetary increase, their, even their children. They had to, to consecrate the firstborn. 
among their children, their animals. They had to sacrifice the firstborn of all of their animals. They had to give God the first fruits of all of their crops. God said, give to me, give to me. And in the New Testament, it's nothing different. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in stores. God has prospered us that there be no gatherings when I come. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 to 8. But this I say, he that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, but he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man as he is purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God says, honor me with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. I've heard preachers preach this all my life. Man, don't give God the leftovers. Don't give God the scraps after you've done everything else in life that you want to do. With the money that he blesses you with, give him of the first fruits, the first fruits of what he gives to us. And again, it's not going to be for naught. We just looked at the passage in 2 Corinthians 9. You sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. But guess what? You sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. We're not among those health and wealth so-called preachers, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar, we're not these guys who are always up here with our hands stuck out begging so that my bank account can be fat and so that my uh, 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 hanger can have a private jet. That's, that's not what we're doing. We, we teach what the Bible teaches. We teach what the Bible teaches in regards to giving. And God says, give to me because the work of the Lord takes requires funding. It's not for the preacher to get rich. It's not for us to, to build lavish buildings so the Baptists can roll by and say, ah, oh, look at that. Because God's work requires monetary increase. But Chuck said he was just down in Mexico, man. You able to get down there for free? Absolutely not. Down there doing the Lord's work. We started the Texas School of Preaching. Guess what, man? We encourage people to, to give to the Texas School of Preaching because it takes funding. It requires funding in order for us to be able to operate and train these men to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ distinctly, with fervor, with power, with accuracy, faithfully. It requires, requires funding to do that. It's not for us. It's for the work of the Lord. God says, make sure that you give. Honor me with your increase. And then finally, finally, finally here, he says, verse number 11, and this is the first negative way in which this is put my son despise not the chastening of the lord so trust in the lord with all thine heart the bible says fear the lord number two honor the lord number three number four what is our responsibility despise not the chastening of the lord nor grow weary of his correction for whom the lord loveth he corrects as a father the son in whom his son soul delights god chastens us because he loves us because he loves us man if you see a child that goes undisciplined and unchastened then you need to really question the love of the parents for that child and again Solomon says this not only here but in various places in the book of Proverbs he who spareth the rod hateth his son now, that comes from the words of God. That comes from the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't matter what we think. Remember, lean not on your own understanding. We got a whole lot of people leaning on their own understanding or on Dr. Spock's understanding. In regards to how we are to discipline and chastise our children, lean on God's understanding. He's given us 
the directions that are going to be effective in bringing up children in his nurture and in his admonition. Do what God says. God says it will be a demonstration of love for them. Demonstration of love for them. I correct my kids. I chasten them when they were young because we love them. Because we love them. Not <coughs> for kicks and giggles. Because that old saying, that old cliche, this is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. Yeah, I don't know if kids buy into that or not. But there's some truth there, right? There's a little bit of truth there, man. Nobody gained joy from having to physically chastise their children when it was needed. But the fact of the matter is it was needed. And to show them that we love them. Despise not the chastening of the Lord. We have responsibility to the great God of heaven. God is so very good to us. He daily loads us with benefits. And daily we ought to do everything within our power to fulfill our responsibility that we have to him. If you've not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's your first responsibility. God has given his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary. God came down to this earth, became flesh, made of a woman, made under the law. Galatians 4, verse number 4. For what purpose? Become a sacrifice for you and for me. See, God can't die. Like we said earlier, God can't lie. Guess what? God can't die either. He's got to become a man in order to die. And he was willing to do that for you and for me. That we could be redeemed from the sin that we sold ourselves to. Every last one of us, all of sin, come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. So that we can be reconciled from God to, to God that we had separated ourselves from. Isaiah 59 verse number 1. God's hand is not shortened, neither is his ear heavy. But your iniquities have caused separation between you and your God and your sins have caused him to hide his face from you that he will not hear. That reconciliation comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God did that for us, gave the son for us. The Bible says that we will believe this truth. And the fact that God has raised him from the dead, which he did by his glory and power, Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. If we will confess our Lord Savior Jesus Christ that He is God in the flesh, famous Peter did in the book of Matthew chapter 16, verse number 16. If we will repent of sin, but if we don't repent, we will perish. Luke 13, verse number 3. If we will be immersed like that Ethiopian nobleman was done, or like he submitted to, pardon me. Whenever Philip studied with him in that chariot, what Chris talked about on this morning, and we will submit to the ordinance of baptism, the Bible tells us, and at that point the Lord will wash away our sins. Acts 22, verse 16. He will forgive us. Acts 2, verse number 38. He will add us to the body of Christ. Acts 2, 41 to 47. We will put on Christ. Galatians 3, 27. We will become his. Kingdom, which is coming back for well, verse 15, chapter 15, verse 24. If this morning be your desire to fulfill your responsibility to God and obedience to His Son's gospel, then we are ready to facilitate that. If you're a child of God already, if you wonder when you need to come home, guess what? God will facilitate that also. If you will come, that's 